called to be cooperative, honest, and dependable at work. Just so you don't get fired, so you can get a promotion. What was the reason Paul said Christian workers are to stand out as cooperative, honest, and dependable on their jobs? Okay, you don't have to be here, but there's a God nice verse that'll tell us. Adorn the gospel of God. Okay, very good. Adorn the doctrine of God. So what does it mean to adorn? Do you remember what that word means? Wear. Pardon me? Wear it. Wear it. Okay, in what sense? Wear it. There's like a certain because flavor to the word adorn. When someone looks at you, that's what they'll see. Okay. So the basic meaning of adorn is to call attention to the beauty or enhance the attractiveness of something. So if you're going to show off a diamond, you put it on a black velvet background, doesn't make the diamond more bright, it just shows how sparkly it already is. And so in adorning the doctrine of God doesn't make the doctrine of God more beautiful than it already is. It just helps other people see how beautiful it is. And they see it by how we work. If we're cooperative, honest, and dependable, they see it. You don't just hear it with the words, oh, I'm a Christian, or I go to church, or I don't whatever. It's like, I see there's a difference in your life. It calls attention to the beauty of what God must have done in your life. Okay? So that's the goal of going to work tomorrow, not just get a paycheck, pay the bills, have something to do. It's, I'm there on assignment to be an ambassador, to be a salt and light, to be a representative of Christ, so that whoever sees me and how I work, it points to Christ. Does that make sense? All right. What are some of the definitions of God's grace that we looked at last week? Mentioned four of them, and I hope you will remember at least one. Unmerited favor. Okay, to whom? So, the other half of that is to people who deserve wrath. So it's not just favor. We can have, do things for other people that are a favor, they don't necessarily deserve it, but they're nice people. But in God's case, it's unmerited favor, unmerited kindness to those who deserve his wrath. So that would be one definition. We should attribute that one to Jerry Bridges. What's the acronym? Take the letters of grace. What does that come out to be? God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay. And then Matthew Henry's definition was God's goodwill toward us and good work in us. And then John Piper's is, it is not just pardon for our disobedience, but power for obedience. And that's kind of is a transition to the next question, and that is, along with bringing salvation, what else does the grace of God do? Instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly. Okay, so the same grace that saves, sanctifies, it teaches, it trains, it instructs, 
to live a certain way. It's not just, you're not going to hell now. It's this program that God puts us in <laughs> to deny what we were before we came to Christ and start living in a way that's consistent with Christ. All right. What is the blessed hope and why is it called that? to the coming of Christ. Right. Okay. So that's the event he's talking about. Why would he call it the blessed hope? Well, he said that blessed is truly happy. Okay. Yeah. And so maybe not that that's how we our frame of reference all the time but that's what it should be is that the return of Christ should be the the happiest thing the most looked forward to okay, good. we could have. Good. So remember, hope is confident expectation of future good because God has promised it. So that Titus 1. So a blessed hope is a confident expectation of a future joy. <laughs> Namely, Christ coming back and being with him forever. In this world we've done and we start in a new world, new heavens, and uh, all the sin and sorrow and pain and suffering and death itself will be gone and we'll be in the presence of God forever in whose presence is fullness of joy. So there's blessed, right? You get to be with Jesus, that's fullness of joy. So that's why it's worth looking forward to. What were the two reasons Jesus gave himself for us? Okay, good. What does what redeem mean, Katie? Uh, save us from our sin. Right, so redeem or purchase us from our lawless deeds, and then what was the positive? That's taking away the negative, but then also what? Purify. Purify what kind of people? For his own possession, for ourselves, for good work. Okay, good. So again, not just subtract sins. That's great. We're thankful to God for that. But it's also a new kind of people. Not just walking around like you used to be, you're just not going to hell for it. It's you're a new person. Yes. You're God's own possession. And what does zealous mean? Anybody remember zealous? What was Tom's synonym last week? Remember what you said, Tom? Passionate. Passionate about it. Or enthusiastically serious was the phrase that I used. It's just... They're all about good works, not in order to gain or get more of God's favor, but as a fruit of a new heart that came from salvation. So it's just part of the evidence that we've been changed by the grace of God. So any questions or comments on what we saw last week in chapter 2? All right, well, let's start with chapter 3. Would somebody read the first two verses, please? Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Thank you. So what is a Christian's appropriate response to those in government authority? To be subject. 
Okay, good, or submissive. And of course, what's the other main text that tells us that and why? Anybody know? Romans 13. Right, Romans 13, would you read verse 1, Mike? So there's the instruction, and then there's a reason for the instruction. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that are, or that be ordained, are of God. So God put those rulers in place, uh, and so he calls us to be submissive to them because he put them there. And that's, again, we talked about the fact sometimes there's we must obey God rather than men if it's a clear-cut case of the government rulers are telling us to do something God says not to or vice versa. But otherwise, you're, if you're a Christian, you're still supposed to pay your taxes. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. You know? You're supposed to obey the speeding laws. Okay? Sometimes when I'm a little late, I kind of push that a little bit. It's like, oh, that's right. <laughs> you're supposed to be submissive to the laws uh, as a Christian. So... Not just so I don't get a ticket, but because God said so. So, um, why would we need a reminder to be ready for every good work? Why wouldn't we be ready for every good work? If we're sinning, we're not ready. Hey, that would be a big one, yeah. What would be other reasons, just short of this point, sinning? to not be ready for every good work, right? Just to, I mean, it seems like, for me, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but um, it's very easy to fall into a sense of um, slumber, laziness, and just having a mindset of not being ready for those opportunities when the Lord brings them around, to dive in and, and, and serve. Um, that general sense of selfishness can kind of creep in and make a person unready Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or beyond the sense of selfishness, just a sense of being caught up in the busyness of your life or whatever your circumstances are, thinking about what your troubles are and not being aware of what is going on in the lives of those around you that you can be of service to. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, Tom? Romans 1 reminds us that our mm -hmm. flesh wants to glorify ourselves mm -hmm. and, and man-made things rather than God. So we need the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We need to be in His Word to be prepared to put to death our self-focus. At least I do. Mm -hmm. That preps me for what God is doing in front of me. Any other thoughts on being ready for every good work? Okay. What does it mean to malign? I don't know if you have some other translations. Malign no one. Slander. Hey, okay, slander, speak bad, trash talk. Um, or verbally trash. I mean, trash talk before a game is fine, but. <laughs> um, but what it was like mean, no. And um, just different guys that spend time on social media, which I don't. Um, say there's a, Christians just can get really nasty out there uh, with each other or with the world uh, and it says malign no one so just, again a reminder that we don't just have open season just because we have the anonymity of a 
computer and nobody knows who we are to just attack people. Be gracious. And then to whom are we to be peaceable, gentle, and courteous? To everyone. Everyone. No exceptions. All people are included. Um, are all people easy to be peaceable? Well, that's a yes or no question. We already know that one. Not everybody is easy to be courteous, gentle, and peaceable with. But again, we're called to do that. So we need God's grace to enable us to do what he calls us to do. It doesn't come naturally. How, so we're going to transition into how Paul encourages us to respond the way he just told us to in the instructions in verse 1 and 2. Remember, observation is looking for statements from the author that tell us his train of thought. So you should have the first word of verse 3 is for. Okay. So because, here's the reason why I'm calling you to do verse 1 and 2. Somebody read verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So that's quite a list, isn't it? Um, what is this point? What's the connection between 1 and 2 and the reason in 3? How does he get there? like the log in your own eye, that whole analogy that Christ talks about. Oh, if you have a okay. speck in your own eye, or you see the speck in somebody's else's eye, you don't see the sin in yourself. So you were a sinner as well, and to look at that, you should have grace for others who also okay. were like you, or are like you. Good. Were. Good. Yeah, before the grace of God saved us, we were no different and no better than the people around us. So don't forget that. We're not somehow, oh, I'm saving us. I'm better than you. I'm above you in some ways. No. You're a sinner saved by grace. And the only reason you're any different is because of grace, not because of you. And so that should keep us humble and help see other people that way. Uh, John Newton tells a story about um, if you were uh, traveling in a carriage and you went into a ditch and a bunch of you are, are down there, and you can't get out, and then one of you gets rescued. Let's say you get rescued. You don't make fun of the people that are still in the ditch just because you got out. You're no different. You were there too. Somebody got you out. They aren't out yet. Um, and he compares it to, would it make sense for Bartimaeus to start beating every other blind person with a stick because he got his sight back? No. You know, and so don't forget who we were. Remember Ephesians 2? Remember, Gentiles, which is everybody in this room, you were formerly, you know, strangers of the covenant, without God, without hope in this world, but God saved you. But don't forget who you were. And really, still are, not as blatant as all that, but we're still sinners. It's not like we're sinners emeritus. <laughs> if you graduated from that. So we're still in the same boat. We're still sinners with everybody else. So it, it should lead to peaceable, gentle, courteous, not maligning people and being ready for good works. That's how he connects it. 
Don't forget where you came from. So any questions on that? Or any questions on the unflattering description of what our lives were like before Christ? Not a pretty picture, is it? Okay, well, let's keep going. Four through seven. So we read Titus 3, 4 through 7. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Okay, thank you so. Another long but beautiful sentence as far as salvation. Um, and it's similar. Oh, let's start with this. Why did God save people like us who were verse 3? Because it's verse 3, this is what you're like, we're like, but God. So... What are the characteristics or attributes of God that he mentions? There's four of them. There's kindness. Kindness. Mercy. Goodness. Okay, goodness or love. And what else? Grace. Grace. Four things. Can you think of another passage where those four things are mentioned in terms of what prompted God to do what he did? All four of them. Okay, so let's go to Ephesians 2. And it's very similar in structure to Titus 3 because he's going to start with a description of who we were before Christ. There's going to be this beautiful but God transition and then a description of what God did and why and why not because we didn't hit the why not yet either. So, Would somebody read Ephesians 2? Let's just start with the first three verses. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay, so again, just a brutal description of all of us before the grace of God intervened. We're dead, not just sick, not just dying, already at the bottom of the lake, need to be pulled out and get new life. Okay? So, and then look at this. But God, somebody read 4 through 9, please. But God, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. No, actually, 10th grade, sure. because it ties into Titus also. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay. So did you notice those four attributes? <coughs> Mercy, grace, love, and kindness. Kindness. And our own works ruled out as any contribution to God rescuing us. And we saw that in Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done. So, four reasons why God's character, a big reason it wasn't us, <laughs> and then the uh, good works follow in both Titus and Ephesians. So any comments or questions on that massive statement about salvation in Titus? What is regeneration? Being made new again. Okay. It's, it's basically a synonym for being born again or being born from above. Um, we just saw in Ephesians 2, you were dead. So what do dead people need? Life. So regeneration is the gift of new life. Where does it come from? I think 1 Peter 1, 3. Who brings about regeneration? Do we do that somehow? or The Spirit of God. God, God has to do it, right? Blessed be the God, Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. God causes us. We're dead. We can't do anything. He causes it through the Holy Spirit, gives us new life. Um, so why is that important? Remember what did Jesus say about how important it is to be born again? What did he say? <coughs> Unless you've been born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it or enter it. And therefore, he says, you must be born again. No options. So we must be born again. We're dead. God has to do it. It's a miracle. It's nothing less than supernatural, miraculous grace. So what is renewing? Sanctification. Okay, good. Be a good synonym. Um, it's the ongoing process of changing us from what we were to what we're called to be in Christ. So, you were, verse 3, <laughs> you're being renewed so you're less and less like that and more and more like Christ. So, sanctification is the big word for that, being set apart from sin to God. So any comments or questions on, again, this big picture of salvation, not just 
My sins are subjected. I'm not going to hell. It's big. It's much bigger than we often think of what all God is doing. Okay, what does it mean to be justified? How do we use the word justified in just a non-church setting? How might you hear the word justified in normal day? Justified. I've never done it. Justified. Just as if. Okay. Not quite what we're looking for. So if I say I felt justified taking the afternoon off, what am I saying? I had an excuse. It was right to do it. It was right to do it. Okay. I'm looking for a verdict of rightness. That in your eyes or my wife's eyes or whoever's eyes, it was the right thing to do. Oh, I had a sick kid. I needed to take the day off. Oh, that's the right thing to do. That's the right call. So it's securing a verdict of being right. Okay? So that's how we use it every day. How do you justify spending that much money when our budget's behind? How do you get a verdict of being right? That, that seems like a wrong decision to spend that much money when we have car repairs coming up. Or yeah, so we use it about a verdict of rightness or wrongness. Okay? And in the Bible, it's a verdict before God, being right before God, right in his sight, right before his law, as opposed to condemned and guilty in his sight. Okay? So that's what justified means. And of course, Romans spends a lot of time talking about that. Galatians talks a lot about that. But here it is right in Titus as well. We were justified by his Grace. So we don't justify ourselves. His grace declares us righteous. Um, and just to tag on, just it's not just just as if I didn't sin, which is a very common definition, Jan. You're right. That's a, probably the standard one. But again, a fuller picture would be the, not only my sins subtracted, but righteousness credited to me. Because I'm not just in debt, I need righteousness to be in front of a perfectly righteous God. So one way to think of it is everybody wants to buy a house in heaven. Let's just say this is illustration purposes only. Cost a million dollars. Guess what? You're a million dollars in debt. You can't buy that house. So forgiveness is your debt is paid. Now you're at zero. You're still a million dollars short of a house in heaven. You need, the, what we're saying is, you need righteousness. You need something positive on your account. You need rightness before God. You need to have kept the whole law perfectly, 100% of the time, your whole life, to be right in God's sight. Well, none of us are or can. Jesus did. So it's not only... Jesus' blood takes away our sin and our debt, but his perfect track record of obedience to God is credited to our account. So, um, you know, again, that's the language we talk about all the time. I, uh, I, need, I did it just this week. I did a transfer from savings to checking. I needed it credited to that account. Because <laughs> that account, account was going to bounce some checks if I didn't put some in there. And... We need righteousness credited to our account, and the only one that's going to 
do is Jesus' righteousness on our account. So subtraction of sin and su supplying of righteousness. So that's justified. What's an heir? As in H-E-I-R. One who stands in line to inherit something. Okay, good. Usually a family member, right? I mean, some people might be non-family member, but usually it's a family member who's going to inherit something in the future. Okay, you don't have it yet. It's coming when that relative dies and the will is executed. Okay, so what is our inheritance? For heirs, what are we inheriting in the future? Ephesians 1.14 says it. Okay. Uh, the, spirit of, the Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised. Okay. And that <clears throat> He has purchased us to be His own people. He okay. did this so we would praise and glorify Him. Good, good. So there's another reference to the inheritance and the assurance of it, that it's coming. What... What is the inheritance like, according to 1 Peter, four things? First Peter 1, 4. Anybody remember? Or look it up. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven. Boom. So that's a good inheritance. So... That none of the verses tell us, I'd like to at least make the case. The inheritance is not you get a mansion and live on a golden street. I believe the inheritance is God himself. You get God. When this is over, we get God. And we're in his presence forever. Because what else would satisfy the soul? And I mean, if you say anything bigger... Other than that, that's idolatry. It's like, yeah, God's great about heaven, but what I really think is cool is the mansion. Or my crown with all these stars. Or <laughs> seeing Aunt Ruby again after all these years. Or all the things that people talk about, like that's what heaven's about. No, it's about being with God. And that's the inheritance. Don't settle for anything less than that. That's what is coming. So any questions or comments on that? Mike? Um, when it says at the end of verse 7, um, here's according to the hope of eternal life, um, and then taking John 17, verse 3. Oh, read it, please. I was actually had that in my notes, but let's do it. Um, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So to truly know him is eternal life. Okay. So, to know and enjoy God now and forever. That's what eternal life is. So we know him in part now. And what we know is wonderful. We'll know him fully in heaven and enjoy him fully. Because we don't fully enjoy him yet either. Right? We're clogged between tiredness and sin and small thoughts of God and everything else. We don't fully enjoy God yet, but we will. So I think that's the inheritance is knowing and enjoying God forever and ever. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Any other thoughts or questions on salvation and justified and our inheritance? 
Let's read 8 through 15, please. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have been who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, where I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not to be unfruitful. All who are with me, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Okay. So what is the relationship between faith and works? faith will be careful to engage in good deeds as works. So the believing comes first. It's the root. The roots are the fruit. Believing is the cause. Works are the effect. Again, we have to keep those clear. <laughs> works do not contribute in any way to our relationship with God, either before or after Christ. Um, they are evidence of that relationship. Um, what else does Paul say about engaging in good deeds? What are two additional reasons besides that it's the overflow of faith? Says they are excellent and profitable for people. Okay, good. How about verse So that would be a good start, right? Is no, nobody wants to be unfruitful. So being engaged in good deeds is a way of being fruitful. And then the other piece is to meet pressing needs or urgent needs. So um, I just always love the description in Acts 4.34 that in the early church there was not a needy person among them. You know, if there was a need in the body, the body responded so that there wasn't any unmet 
needs. And I think that'd be a great goal for us as a church family, that we become aware of a need, we do whatever we can to try to meet that need, uh, and that's part of verse 14. Meet the need, be fruitful, engage in good deeds, as the fruit and the overflow of your faith in Christ. So any comments on that? How are we to handle foolish controversies? Warning two times. You're actually one step ahead of me, Jen, because that's my next question. So, so let's go. Let's talk about that. How do we handle divisive people? Warn them two times, and then what? And then have nothing to do with right. it. So, as a church, we actually had to do this several years back with someone who was being very disruptive and divisive. And we, at that time, we just had deacons. But I went to this person and said, "On, we are officially warning you in light of Titus three. You need to stop being so." such a troublemaker in our church family. We've worked hard to have unity here, and we're not going to let you come in here and wreck that. And they left, which is fine. <laughs> which is what you'd have to do after the second morning. They just didn't wait till the second morning. They just left after the first. But that's okay. Divisive people, Paul says, are our problem. They need to not be there. Um, so then let's go to foolish controversies. What are we supposed to do with those? It says avoid them. Avoid them. Just do nothing with them. Don't get in. Get tangled up with those. Um, and again, you know, courtesy of other brothers, tell me what some of the discussions are out there on the internet in Christian circles. I'm like, really? <laughs> what a waste of time. Why are you spending all the time arguing about something that really doesn't make any difference now? <laughs> Larry? The word law here is capitalized. So I was just hoping you could disputes about the law. Is that is that Jewish law? Is that Roman law? Is that I just can't imagine. No, that's a fair that. question, and to me, yeah. Um, usually, at least when Bible translators make a capital L, they are referring to the the Jewish law. You're right, um, and and that would fit in terms of the genealogies. And the speech by law is like, okay, here's somebody that's just really caught up in some Old Testament stuff. And he's saying, you, you could spend a lot of time and have a lot more heat than light after that discussion. Um, so avoid it. Just, we're not in the Old Testament anymore. Um, so some of those regulations and genealogies, it's like, you know, where did King get his wife? Well, I tell you if I were able to. Um, or I wasn't invited to the wedding, or whatever. He's like, I don't have time to mess with you on. That's just such a that's a genealogical question. Does it really matter today <laughs> to you in a real way? Where King got his wife? I mean, does that change your life in any significant way? No. Don't waste your time on stuff like that. I mean, I think there are answers, but why get just go down those rabbit holes or uh, go into the weeds and all that? There's much better things to talk about, like, you know, chapter 3, 4 through 7. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about regeneration and justification and renewing in our inheritance. And that matters to everybody forever. And we're, these genealogies are, well, do you think this law, you know, 
boiling a kid in its mother's milk, you know, what about that? You know, well, you know, I'm sure there's a great answer out there and somebody smarter than I can help you, but I just really don't want to spend a lot of time on that. That's just where I'm, the way I'm wired. And I think I have biblical basis for being wired that way. It's like, it's a waste of time, usually. It, you know, very few people are not going to go to heaven because they didn't know where King got his wife. You know, I don't think that'll hold up on the judgment day. You know, I couldn't believe in God because I could never get that one solved. You know, it's like, let's, let's talk about stuff that matters and avoid the stuff that doesn't. Seems to be the instruction there. So anyway, that's the book of Titus. Any questions or comments? Okay, so here's preview of coming events. Next Sunday, Lord willing, Joe and Mary Berg will be with us. Uh, the Bergs have served in Pakistan. They've served in Jordan. And now, most recently, they've been in the United Arab Emirates. They're home on furlough. They'll be sharing during Sunday school. Joel will be preaching. There's a church picnic afterwards at Riverside Park. And then two Sundays from now, Lord willing, we'll start 2 Timothy. Um, and again, we did it out of... Bible order, but we did it in chronological order. Second Timothy is the last letter Paul writes, so it seemed fitting to do that last instead of Second Timothy, and then, oh, you're still Titus. I thought he was dead. You know, so that's that's where we're going, Lord willing, on the next couple Sunday schools. So let's close in prayer, Mike. Would you do this? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Been so gracious to give it to us that we may enjoy it learn from it, put away our past deeds, and press on toward those good works that you prepared for us. I pray, Lord, that stir our hearts to worship and ponder those things that you've given us thus far. I pray, Lord, for the rest of the morning that you be with us and stir up our hearts by the preaching of your word, that you be glorified in every second of it, that we would leave today ready to be an example to those around us that would glorify you, that Lord, that ultimately that they would glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.